Hello, and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. Let's pick it up in John 4:43 that tells us after the two days he left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. So Jesus was not surprised that the Jews in Jerusalem and Judea had for the most part been against him. And yet the Samaritans had been so open to what he had to say. The people, however, were very excited that Christ had come back to Galilee, as many of them had been in the capital city for Passover and news of the signs and the miracles he'd performed had begun to spread. Once more, he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. So Jesus had been to Cana in Galilee before, and that was at the wedding feast when he changed the water into wine. And upon his return there, Jesus was visited by this important man who likely worked for one of the regional puppet kings that Rome had appointed over the Jewish people. This man's son lay sick and close to death in Capernaum, which was almost 20 miles away at the edge of the Sea of Galilee. Verse 48, Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. You know, this really is an amazing interaction. Imagine walking all that way and pleading with Jesus to return with you only for him to send you on your way home alone. Surely this was not the answer that the man had hoped for. All this man had to go on was Jesus' word that his son would live. And yet, do you see, it says in the text, the man took Jesus at his word and departed. And you know, that's certainly challenging to you and me. Because do we take God at his word? Are we as quick to obey what he says to us? Verse 51, while he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the man realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. 
This outcome then not only affected the man and his son, it actually affected everyone in his household. And that touches my heart because, you know, often we complain about our whole household and the fact that not everybody in it believes in the Lord. And yet, have you ever considered that that might be different if they actually saw us act on the word of God and obey his commands? We know that John did not report everything that Jesus did, but he tells us in verse 54 that this was the second sign that Jesus had done in Galilee. And remember, a sign in scripture is something that points beyond itself. Now, the first sign was at the wedding feast, and it had been about how Jesus would transform the empty rituals of the Old Testament by his coming. And then this second sign really points in a spiritual sense to the fact that Jesus had come to make those who were dying well again. It's interesting to me though that with both of these different signs the first to see what Jesus did was actually the servants and as you and I serve Jesus we should expect the same. We'll be the first to know when God is doing a new work. Let's continue though in chapter 5. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, there was in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters, the first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? We're not told which feast this was, only that it caused Jesus to return to Jerusalem. The wall around the city of Jerusalem had been built with 10 different gates in it, and Jesus entered through the gate that was known as the Sheep Gate. The sacrificial lambs for the temple were brought through that gate, and that's where it got its name from. And so I don't really think that it was a coincidence that Jesus, the Lamb of God, entered the city by that gate. At that gate was this pool known as Bethesda. Several places in scripture have got names that sound very similar. For example, in the north of the country, remember, by the Sea of Galilee, there is a place known as Bethsaida. Bethsaida means house of fish. However, this pool in Jerusalem was called Bethesda, and it meant either house of mercy or house of grace. So it was here at this pool that sick people used to lie in the hopes of being healed. Now, not all Bible translations have verse 4 in them because that verse was missing from the earliest copies of the manuscripts that we have. Many scholars think that a copyist actually added verse 4 later to explain why so many people waited by the pool. And 
let me say, before you go doubting whether the Bible is accurate or not, think about this. The addition or the subtraction of that verse does not change the meaning of the text in any way. But it is helpful for us to know that people waited by the pool from time to because from time to time an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. Now, it's not really clear how long the man had been lying at the pool, but Jesus knew that he'd been paralyzed for 38 years. And so he speaks to the man and asks, do you want to be made well? It's a very strange question to ask him, isn't it? Because after 38 years, surely the man's answer would have been yes. But actually, this is not a straightforward question. If the man was healed, life as he knew it would change dramatically. He may hate being paralyzed, but at least he was accustomed to it, and he could count on people showing mercy to him on their way to the temple. Now, before you gasp in horror at what I just said, let me explain. Many people have a distorted view of how normal life is supposed to be. And even some of us, when we look back into our own lives, we might realize that wounds from long ago have left us feeling paralyzed in some way even today. We may hate our normal, but on the other hand, this is the way we've learned to do life. And anything different seems truly impossible to imagine. Well, Jesus asks you and me the same question. Do you want to be made well? And suddenly we realize that it's kind of risky to answer yes, because change is uncomfortable. After 38 years of doing life this way, the man seems to have lost all hope. Look at his answer. He doesn't even focus on the question Jesus has asked, but what he does say shows us something very interesting. Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. Where was this man's focus? His focus was on the people that he needed help from. And all he thought about was how he needed others to act differently so that his circumstances could change. His focus was not only on the people, it was also on the pool. And I think it's no different for you and me. We get irritated with others, don't we? Thinking, how am I ever going to get to be where I need to be if people don't help me? We get so focused on what we need and who must behave differently to get us there that we totally leave Jesus out of our calculations. All this man needed was Christ. And let me tell you, Jesus doesn't need the pool and he doesn't need people to get this man to where he needs to be. Nothing is impossible for the Lord. And he tells this man to get up, 
pick up your mat and walk. And once the ma- at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. This all occurred on the Sabbath, the Jewish day of rest. Now, God had said that his people were to have a day each week to worship him, and on that day no work would be allowed. But God's law also said that even on the Sabbath, people could do something to help rescue someone else in order to save a life. The Jewish leaders had encircled God's law with their own fence laws, however, and we know that what they had said had become even more important than what God had said. You might be interested to know that the religious leaders had written down 24 chapters of instructions concerning Sabbath laws alone. And they'd made up a list of 39 acts that they said were forbidden on the Sabbath. And one of those forbidden acts was that of taking an object from one place to another. The very thing that this man was told by Jesus to do. The question is, was he to obey them or was he to obey the living Christ? Now, remember, according to God, it was never wrong to save a life or to do good on the Sabbath. Jesus kept the law of God by performing this act of mercy. But what he did was he ignored the regulations that the religious leaders had added. And that's what they were so angry about. They paid no attention to the healing performed by Christ. Their only interest is in the fact that Jesus had really challenged their authority. Verse 12. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you're well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. Now, we're not sure if the man was at the temple to give thanks to God for his healing, or if perhaps he was there because he was in trouble with the religious leaders for carrying his mat. Whatever the case, Jesus searched him out because he wants him to know him. It's important, though, for us to understand that Jesus wasn't saying that sin had caused this man's sickness, but Jesus wanted him to know that the consequences of sin would be far worse than any physical suffering this man might have known previously. Jesus wants to make us whole and he wants to transform our lives. We cannot stay the way that we once were. We cannot go back to that old life. This wasn't the first time Jesus healed someone on the Sabbath and consequently the religious leaders were beginning to watch him at this point. Verse 16. 
So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So do you see how they understand from this that Jesus is making himself equal with God through his claims? And in fact, we're going to see very soon in John 10:33 that these religious leaders actually fully understood that Jesus was claiming to be God. In what Jesus says next, he emphasizes that truth, actually. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. So you see how Jesus starts his sentence there with the words, very truly. So what follows is unquestionably true. Underline, Whatever the father does, the son also does. He is claiming to do the things that only God is able to do. So no wonder they were so angry with him. Verse 20. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. So here Jesus makes some amazing claims about himself. He says that just like God the Father, he is able to raise the dead, not just physically, but spiritually as well. And he tells them that he is judge of all, even though the Jews would have known that Genesis 18.25 declares God himself as judge of all the earth. As life giver and judge, Jesus is really claiming to be God himself. And he goes on to tell them that whoever does not honor him does not honor God the Father. He goes on in verse 24 then to say, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. If we are to understand this, we must realize that man is an eternal being. We all live forever. The choice we have is where. Scripture tells us that there are two kinds of life. There's physical life when we are alive in our bodies, and there's also spiritual life when we're born again and are able to stand in God's presence. If you've been born again, if you've been born that second time, you will only die once physically. 
Your body will stop breathing, but your spirit will never be separated from God's presence. Your sin will not be judged, according to the text, because it was judged at the cross. And by believing in Jesus, you have already crossed over from death to life. However, scripture also speaks of two kinds of death as well. There is physical death when a person's body stops, but for the unbeliever, there is also something known as the second death, which does not mean that their spirit is destroyed, but rather that their spirit is separated from God forever. So you can remember this this way. Born twice, die once, but born once, you die twice. If you're born again a second time, you only face physical death. But if you're never born from above, you'll not only face the death of your body, you'll face eternal separation from God as well. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but is crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. So Jesus says that there are people who, although they are breathing, are spiritually dead at that very moment. And there are people in the crowd who, though being spiritually dead, will hear his voice, will believe and accept that truth, and they will live. For he is the one through whom this life of God comes. He is the judge, the promised Messiah. In verse 28 onwards, Jesus goes on, Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. So Jesus speaks of two different resurrections here in the text, and these resurrections are the resurrection of life and the resurrection of condemnation. There is a day coming in the future when Christ will return and all people will receive their glorified bodies. According to scripture, our spirits do not cease to exist. Upon death, the spirit of the believer is immediately with Christ. And upon death, the spirit of the unbeliever is immediately not with Christ, but is rather held for judgment. When Christ returns, there's going to be the resurrection. The righteous who return with Christ will receive their glorified bodies. And at that time, those who did evil will also receive their bodies for all eternity. Now, we need to look at something more closely here. Do you see in verse 29 that Jesus says that those who have done what is good will rise to live? And I'm sure you're probably wondering about that because it seems to be saying that good works are necessary to have life in God's presence. However, when we get into John chapter 6, 
verses 28 to 29, there we're going to see that the people actually ask Jesus specifically, what are the good works that God requires of them? To which he replies that only one work is necessary. And he says, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Getting back to John 5:29, all those who do evil then would be those who do not believe in the one that God has sent. However, Jesus says that he is just in carrying out his judgment and we can trust him to carry out the Father's will. Before we begin the next section though, it's important to understand that according to the law of Moses, Truth had to be confirmed by two witnesses. And Jesus says here in verse 31, If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. In other words, if he's the only one to speak like this about himself, those listening would have good cause to doubt him. However, there are four other witnesses to the fact that he is who he says he is. The law required only two, but he has four other witnesses. So he begins in the next verse by saying, There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you might be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. John the Baptist is really the first witness to shed light on who the Messiah is. He was the one to confirm that Jesus is the one who brings salvation. But then Christ goes on. I have testimony weightier than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, testify that the Father has sent me. So even the miracles themselves were proof that Jesus is who he claims to be. Even Nicodemus, if you remember, in John chapter 3, even he understood that Jesus could not have done the things he did if God were not with him. In addition, God the Father has also testified about Christ. Look at verse 37. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he has sent. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Every book in the Old Testament God used to point to Christ and what he would someday come to do. But the religious leaders, although they studied the scriptures academically, they weren't listening to the voice of God and they were not willing to come to Christ so that they might have life. Jesus continues in verse 41, I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you, I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. 
I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe, since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? And there is the fourth witness, their great hero of heroes, Moses. He was their accuser before the Father because he had written about Christ in the first five books of the Bible. But even so, they paid no attention. There could be no greater insult to a Pharisee than to tell them that Moses would accuse them for not listening to the word of God. But that was the truth. Jesus wanted to get their attention With the confrontation over, though, chapter 6 opens with Jesus again by the Sea of Galilee. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. People were following Christ in great numbers by now, but most of them were there because of the signs he was doing, the miracles that he was performing. And it seems that very few of them wanted to really sit with him just to listen to him speak, but his disciples did. And that's where we're going to leave our lesson for today as Jesus takes a few quiet moments with his small band of followers on a mountain overlooking the lake. Their time alone, though, was going to be very short because we'll see in our next lesson that a great crowd was coming toward them. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.